Well, you've, uh, you've probably heard the expression, God is not late, but he misses a lot of opportunities to be early. <clears throat> There's probably been times in your life where you've experienced those kinds of things uh, when perhaps money is running out and you're thinking, how is this going to make it to the end of the month maybe? And, and you pray and you pray and you pray and boy, nothing seems to be happening on the 25th and the 26th, no movement and the 27th, just still nothing. And, and it's not until maybe the 30th or the 31st you see that there's some sort of provision there that you were not counting on or anticipating and um, or maybe, I'm sure if we went around the room, there's probably myriad stories that you could tell about the ways God has been faithful to you and proven his faithfulness to you, but he didn't do it early, or he didn't do it on your timetable. He did it on his own. Um, but then there's that time in the middle when you're anticipating, or you're praying, you're hoping that God will step up and answer a prayer for you that you desperately need answered, and there's that moment of testing in the middle where you feel as though you're being stretched super thin. I remember that toy we had as a kid that was called Stretch Armstrong, and you could t- take him, take his arms, and you could, it seems like you could go all the way, you know, to the wall, and it's, it's like you feel like Stretch Armstrong. You're being stretched as thin as you possibly can to, you, the fact, to the point where you think you're going to break, and the question then is, what do you do during those times? Do you actually break Do you falter? Do you give in to sin and temptation? Do you seek uh, answers to your prayers by your own means? Or do you uh, persevere through that time of testing and trust the Lord entirely that he's going to provide? We've been looking at, uh, through the the book of 1 Samuel, as God is establishing the kingdom. uh, First, there was Samuel, who was the judge and uh, prophet really to the nation, and he was going around and he was um, he, he was judging the people and he was leading them righteously and he was speaking on behalf of God. God spoke to him in a unique way that he hadn't in a number of years, and the people rejected Samuel's uh, leadership, really his succession plan. They rejected that altogether and demanded a king. And so we saw this whole sinful pattern of Israel as they demanded a king and he gave them. Saul. So we saw Israel's own impatience as they wait on the Lord. They just, it seems like they can't do it. Well, interestingly enough, the person that they gave to, or the person that God gave to Israel kind of struggles in the same way, to be honest with you. He's a little bit brash. He makes crazy decisions sometimes, but most of them are a result of impatience, of, of knowing that this is what the Lord has told me to do, and yet I don't want to wait. Um, So what we saw last time was that Saul had gone against the Ammonites and he had defeated the Ammonites for his first military victory. Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, was invading uh, the, uh, his, his old home territory, or the home territory of his ancestors. And Saul mounted an army and went after them and, and won. And wow, what a celebration that was. We've, we've finally won a victory underneath our brand new king. And Samuel had told him earlier on when he anointed him that there was going to be a way in which the Lord tested him. First, he was going to see three things on his way back through, but then he was eventually going to make his way to Gilgal. And when he made his way to Gilgal, the important thing that he needed to know was you need to wait for me there for seven days. 
And so Saul went back after he was anointed. He did all this. He won his victory with Ammon. He came back to uh, Gilgal for the first time, and, and there everybody was. Samuel was there, and everybody was there. And Samuel used this opportunity to just remind the children of Israel how sinful they were in being impatient and wanting Saul as their king. And let's just all confess that. Let's renew the covenant. Let's start over right here. And so the people are happy to do that. And Saul then decides afterwards, look, I'm going to begin my first offensive campaign. And so he goes after, well, the people in the territory at the time, which were causing them a lot of trouble. Do you remember who these were? These are the famous Philistines. Naturally, your thought is, okay, it's great if we can defend our territory. But now we've kind of got everybody on the same page. Everybody's here renewing the covenant. Everybody's happy. Everybody's celebrating. We've, we've repented of sin. We're, it's a fresh start. We're ready to go. What's the first thing you're going to do? Well, there's this thorn in our side, the Philistines, and I'm sick of them, and we're going to drive them out. In fact, they were told to do this from the very beginning. The Philistines are a result of their disobedience to begin with. And so Saul mounts up the army, and they begin their first offensive campaign going after the Philistines. But there's a problem. See, the Philistines are an interesting lot because there's no central authority or king over the Philistines. To our knowledge, there never was. There was a lot of just city-state, little kings over individual cities. They always kind of remained separate entities with these little kind of blocks of, of people in these various cities. But they were never brought together and really unified until it came to war. And for some reason, they were able to stick really well together. <laughs> and so Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the armies, they pick out a little outpost of Philistines that are situated nearby, and they think, all right, this is our time, guys. We're going to take them down. And they do. They kill them. There's a great celebration. Saul ends up at Gilgal afterwards because he hears that the Philistines heard of the battle that they picked up, up here uh, in, the, in the land of Israel, and the Philistines all the way in their country, in Gaza and Gath and Ashkelon and Ashdod and Ekron, they heard about this battle, and they're going to mount up together, unify, they're going to come after the Israelites and put them to death. And Saul and his men hear this. We're going to find out why they were so scared today, but they pull back from the land, and they find themselves at Gilgal again. And he remembers that Samuel had told him, when you find yourself at Gilgal, wait for seven days before I come to you. And so Saul waits there for a little while. He's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting. After a couple of days, this is the part where he starts to become Stretch Armstrong. The Lord's stretching him out, right? He's not going to come on the sixth day, just to warn you. He's not gonna, it's not going to happen. In fact, the seventh day, he's going to make you wait a long time on the seventh day too to see what you do. And so Saul's being stretched out like Stretch Armstrong, and it's the seventh day, and Samuel is not there. And all of his people around him are starting to leave because they realize the Philistines are coming, and they're mad. And so we got to get out of here. So a lot of them are leaving, and, and uh, Saul thinks, well, you know, what, what can I do? I guess I'm going to have to do this sacrifice because Samuel's not coming. So instead of waiting on Samuel, he does the sacrifice. And Samuel finally arrives late in the evening in the 11th hour and says, what have you done? Don't you remember what the Lord told you to wait on me? But because you did not wait on me, 
The kingdom is going to be torn away from you. It turns out Saul was on a short leash. That is the definition of a short leash right there. But Saul didn't wait on him. And, and so in the process of being stretched, what we find is that Saul breaks. And Samuel tells him, instead, God is going to go find and is in search now of a man after his own heart. What does that mean? That when he's stretched thin, he won't break. Okay, so we get to our story this, this evening, which is going to be mostly in the second half of 1 Samuel 13, all the way through chapter 14, or mostly through chapter 14, where we're going to see Saul yet again be brash and irrational and make decisions on the, on, at, a, at a snap, and just it seems like his decision quality just continues to go down. Um, so what we find first is that after leaving Gilgal, the place of that unlawful sacrifice, Saul took refuge at Gibeah, and there he only had 600 men. Remember, a lot of his men are leaving. They're disappearing because they know the Philistines are marching in. They're coming in for battle, and the, they're leaving. And we're going to find out why in just a moment. But they're, they're leaving, and they're scared out of their wits. And so when the Philistines, the Philistines ended up camping very nearby at a town called Michmash, so Saul's at Gibeah, and oh, he's actually at, at Mig, uh, Migron, but that's like just a few miles. It's on the outskirts anyway. And uh, the, the Philistines are at Michmash. And the Philistines are camped out there at Michmash, and they're sending out raiding parties. Now, why do you send out raiding parties? To raid. To raid. And what are you raiding for? Stuff. Stuff. All right. Supplies, money, food, whatever your military might need, having marched a long distance. You're probably also testing the defenses, right? Just kind of seeing what's going on. So the Philistines are sending out people on these little independent raids. So they've got their main army camped out at Michmash, and they're sending out these little, uh, they're testing the electric fences, okay, like the dinosaurs at Jurassic Park, okay? So they're just trying to see what's going on, how well this is going to, how well they're going to defend what they've got. Now, the Philistines are shrewd. Here's how shrewd they are. Oh, by the way, let me, let me put up this map real quick just so that you have these towns in your mind, okay? So um, <laughs> you like maps. Shannon loves maps. So we got maps up here. So uh, here's Gibeah where it's, it, it's listed as Gibeah being where uh, Saul is stationed. He's actually in a cave in Migron with his, with his army. This is like five miles at most. So it's on the outskirts of Gibeah. Um, Michmash is here, so you can see uh, maybe a mile and a half, two miles at most, uh, is the distance between Saul's men and the, the, um, the Philistines. The Philistines are sending out raiding parties into Ophrah, into beth Aven, into Gilgal, into various uh, uh, beth Haron, into various places to kind of test the perimeter and see where the defenses are, probably get supplies, do a lot of different things. Here's a blown-up version of that same map if you want to look at it a little bit closer. Um, so you kind of get the idea. The Philistines are sort of getting ready, and, but then you've got this annoying little part of the text where the Israelites are leaving. Now, why are they leaving? Don't they know that God has killed the Ammonites in front of them, and Saul has defeated them, and they went after the Philistines at first, and they were successful in battle there. And don't they trust that, the, that God is going to deliver them from the hands of Philistines this time too? And didn't they know that 
Philistines were going to pick a battle, pick a fight with them. Well, surely they did, but the Philistines have done something very shrewd. Let's look in uh, 1 Samuel 13, uh, 13, verses 19 to 23. Uh, somebody read that out loud there for me. Now there was no blacksmith we found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords of steel. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshare and for the mattock, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the, setting the goats. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Okay, so the... The Philistines, at some point in Israel's history and in their relationship with the Israelites, they had gone into the land and they had taken and deported all the blacksmiths in Israel. Well, if you want to ensure that your enemy has no weapons to fight with, deport all the blacksmiths. That's one way to do it. And it's a really shrewd way to do it. And what's interesting, and I, I've, I try to do this as often as I, as I think details are interesting and, uh, and will help in some way, is that what we have seen over the last, uh, you know, probably century or so in digging up artifacts inside Israel is that there is tons of iron artifacts from the Philistines in the land of Israel that they have dis- discovered. And the Philistines' primary time where they're thriving is during the reign of Saul. And so you, you find these wep- they found these weapons that uh, date back to this very time, and they're distinctively Philistine weapons. And so what it has led a lot of uh, archaeologists to conclude is that not only were the Philistines pretty, uh, is the word prodigious, uh, pretty, uh, uh, I don't know, excellent, uh, with iron, but they probably introduced iron, especially for weaponry and for plows and for axes and things like this, to the land of Canaan. Now, how would they have done that? Well, they were seafaring people, weren't they? And they came from, we think, somewhere near the Isle of Crete or the island of Crete. And so they're, they're bringing things from afar into the land of Canaan. And so the, at least the archaeological evidence is pointing to the fact that the Philistines have probably updated the land of Canaan. And so fits right into the biblical text because who's going to be not only the best at being able to craft these weapons, but also care for these weapons? They are. Who's going to be the ones that know how to sharpen them and do all these kinds of things? So they set up this situation where all the blacksmiths belong to them. And they've sort of deported and ensured that the Israelites have no blacksmiths. And so if you want your axe sharpened or you want your sword sharpened, you're going to have to go down to the, the, you know, the Philistine down the road to get him to sharpen it. And not only that, we also find that they're charging them exorbitant rates to even do it. So it's not worth your time to actually even own an iron sword. The Philistines have the market cornered as far as that goes. So here's some, uh, just a couple of pictures, because uh, I think these are fascinating. This is a Philistine dagger with, this is cool, I think this is cool, maybe you don't, but uh, iron blade and an ivory handle. It's beautiful. I mean, look at that. That's 
It's awesome. Uh, here's a couple more that are Philistine daggers and things like that made of iron. Pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, it's blood. It's blood. It's, you know, it was, it was actually, that was Goliath's dagger. I don't know if you know that or not. That was his dagger. David took it from him and cut off his head with it. You know, I mean, right there after he hit him with a rock. Yeah, 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 I will sell that to you. And I have a bridge, too, if you're curious. I've got one in, in Arizona. It's oceanfront property, overlooks the, it's beautiful. Um, so, so you can see why the people of Israel are leaving. The Philistines are coming, and we're going to have to fight them with our hands. The only people that actually have one is uh, Saul and his son Jonathan. And we're not told why. <laughs> That's a good question. We're not told why. We're not told if the Philistines were like, okay, well, you're the king and you're the king's son here. Fine, you can have a sword. Or if they kind of subversively managed to procure themselves some iron weaponry. We're not, we're not told. But I'm sure the Israelites had uh, weapons that they were probably used to. Uh, some sort of wooden weapons or things like that that they've probably used before. But uh, other than that, it's, they're fighting them by hand. And so you can see why only 600 men are standing around Saul at this point. Because, sorry, Saul, it's for the birds, man. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not dying. I got kids to feed. You know? And so they leave. They're, they're disappearing. And uh, Saul, once again, is panicking. But this time his panic doesn't lead him to sacrifice. This time his panic leads him to not do anything. Well, that's also a sin, especially in this case, because here God has told him, I'm going to drive him out. Samuel has reminded him, God's the one that wins the battle, not you. Well, now he's stretching him pretty far. The military's coming, his men are leaving. He's only got 600 left, and he has no weapons to fight with. What's he going to do? Well, it turns out nothing. He sits and waits. So what happens? Jonathan slips away unnoticed, leaves the company of people, doesn't tell his dad. And why doesn't he tell his dad? Probably because his dad would say no. So like a good son... <laughs> disobeys his father completely, just doesn't tell him, I'd rather ask for forgiveness than permission, is Jonathan's logic most likely. And so he takes off, he goes to um, uh, meet these uh, Philistines at Michmash, slips away under the cloak of, well, I don't know if it was under darkness, but he slips away nonetheless, and he takes with him his armor bearer, and he says, look, there's an outpost of Philistines there at Michmash. That's not where, obviously, where the, the, the massive amount of the army is, but there's at least a little outpost of 20 men up there, these uncircumcised Philistines. Let's go up there and let's climb up on this mountain and let's just kill these guys. And his armor bearer, which if you're an armor bearer for the king, we're going to see David be an armor bearer for Saul in a, in a few chapters, but if you're an armor bearer for the king, you've got to be really courageous because you're not really doing the fighting. You're, you're kind of banking on the king to do a lot of the protecting. You're just carrying his weapons for him. All right? So all of those weapons belong to him. So the armor bearer is like, look, we're of one heart. You do whatever you want to do, and I'm right there behind you. So 
He and his armor bearer come up there on the hill, and the Philistines are like, hey, guys, how you doing? They're like, hey, how's it going? And then they just murder them right there on top of the hill. Now, the interesting thing happens. Well, we'll, we'll talk about this in just a second. Um, there is a reference. Let's, let's actually read. Uh, um, let me see. Well, I lost where it is now. 1 Samuel 14, 1 to 2, then 6, then 13 to 15, um, right here to kind of get a feel of the story. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Now, just pause right there so you know that the, the idea of pomegranates are all over that place, all over that area, but that, that's a kind of a posh way to live, being around pomegranate fruit. That's, a, that's a, the Feast of Kings. So the, the undertones of this text is sort of setting the precedent that Saul is like not just reserved about going into the battle, but kind of going, you know what? Life is pretty good right here. Let's just sit right here. I'd rather do this than anything else. And it seems like there's a little bit of a delay going on there because he's got 600 men. Okay, so he says, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, uh, uh, from saving by many or by few. Then Jonathan climbed up on his, uh, on, on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And, uh, and that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length of an acre of land. Well, you all know how long that is. And, and there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and in even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Now look at 1 Samuel 4.21. Um, uh, and she, uh, oh, so let me, let me back up here. Um, there is a reference coming up, and I don't know why I didn't include the passage that actually has the reference in it. Does anybody have 1 Samuel 4, 13 pulled up on you in your Bibles? Go ahead and pull that up if you, if you can, Blake, and I'll, I'll, we'll get to it in a second. Uh, for, uh, should be 14, should be right there after, thir- after 15 or so. Um, there's a mention of a priest um, in Ahijah in... Uh, is it verse 3? Will you read it out loud? Oh, sure. It has some names in there. Go ahead. And Ahijah, say that. Ichabod. Well, no. Yeah, no. Oh, Ahijah. Uh, yeah, Ahijah, the son of I, he, Ichabod's brother. Hush. Hush. <laughs> 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 it's a hit chart. Okay. Okay, so Jonathan slips out. Let me back up for this story for just a second. Jonathan slips out and goes to defeat the Philistine garrison that's located there. Um, There is a priest named Ahijah, which is there with Saul in his camp. Now, before Saul goes into battle, he's going to want to hear from Ahijah. Why? Because Saul often treats the Lord like a good luck charm. 
And the last thing that he wants to do is go into battle without rubbing the lucky rabbit's foot, okay? To be quite honest. This is kind of the way Saul treats, uh, treats God. And so there is reference to the priest that is with Saul named Ahijah, and there's reference to Ahijah's lineage, which goes back to what priest originally? Eli. Eli. Now, what do we know about Eli? You remember Eli? He's fat. He broke his neck. How were his sons? Were his sons, his sons were good, upstanding men? No. Phineas and, yeah. Were, they were terrible. Worthless, worthless sons. The Bible even calls them that. They were worthless sons. They cheated and all of this kind of stuff. Well, what happens when, uh, when Eli dies? The day Eli dies, do you remember who else dies that day? Hophni and Phinehas, both of his sons. Both of them die on the same day. What does that do to Eli's lineage as priest? It's done. It's over. Okay. So when Ahijah is brought up as the son of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, as the great-grandson of them, what does that tell you about Ahijah? He's part of a dead line. He's not, his line is not priest anymore. In fact, Samuel was the one that was the priest. He was the priest over the... He was raised in the temple. He was raised under Eli. He was the one that was being handed the crown, as it were. So here is Ahijah, who is not part of the priestly lineage anymore, whose priestly lineage has been taken away. Well, what do we know about Saul, just as of last chapter? What about his kingship? It's been taken away. God's looking for a man after his own heart. See ya. You're done. So here you've got two people on a hill who are waiting on the Lord and all of their glory has been taken away. Well, then we get this name Ichabod coming up whose name means, we see in 1 Samuel 4.21, no glory. (laughs) So you have this sort of play on words happening here in the passage to signify that what's happening with these two men as they're standing on top of the hill waiting on, I don't know, the Philistines to die of a heart attack or something. While the son, Jonathan, is trusting the Lord completely, he's going to kill these men for us. Let's just walk up there and see what happens. And what happens? Well, he goes up on the hill, and sure enough, he's able to kill them all. But then not only that, there's the blow of the 20 on top of the hill, but then there's this massive earthquake and all of this panic amongst the Philistines. Now, have you ever been in an earthquake? Anybody ever been in an earthquake? Y'all from California. Surely you've been in an earthquake or two, right? Give me a scale on, the, on a scale of one to terrifying. <laughs> How does it feel to be in an earthquake? It's very scary and it lasts a long time. That scary feeling. Yeah. Every time a truck goes by, you think it's happening. It's scary. It's terrifying. You don't know if it's going to be bigger or if what you were feeling was really huge miles away or what. Yeah. There's the feeling, one, of being in a building and it all shaking. That's one thing. Being outside, even. I've heard people, I've never been in one that quite this bad, but I've, I've heard people talking about the, literally being able to see on the horizon, like the rattle. And the dust from the mountains, too. So you can imagine, in conjunction with one man, or two, as it were, with his armor bearer, coming up on a hill and killing all your, or killing all your men or fighting all your men, and then all of a sudden, God causing an earthquake where the entire earth rumbles. 
Now, you might think God is out to get us. Or you might think if one man is able to kill 20 men, you hear that rumble? That must be the rest of the army in the distance. I don't know what they thought, but it throws the Philistines into a panic. So much so that they begin killing each other because they're so confused. Now, you think to yourself, what on earth would possess you to begin killing each other? Well, in the scriptures, frequently, the spirit of confusion is something brought about by God himself. It's not simply that you would just rationally think, the earth is quaking, kill the person standing next to me. It's not quite like that. But that the spirit of confusion is given to the group so much so that they are terrified. They can't make heads or tails from anything and begin slaying each other, the person standing next to them. And so, what do we find? Uh, let's, let's look in uh, 1 Samuel 14, 16 to 17. Let's read that. And the watchmen of Saul uh, in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan, his armor bearer, uh, and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul finally gets it together. Hey, I think, I think something has happened to Jonathan. He's gone. But you know what? He's still not ready to go out to battle. They hear this commotion happening in the distance. Remember the map. They're not that far away from where all this is happening. He hears this commotion happening in the distance. Probably they can see people scattering left and right, and they're thinking, what is going on? Wait, quick, do a count. Is everyone accounted for? No, Jonathan and his armor bearer are gone. Well, what are they going to do? You see Philistines running in the distance, and you know that your son is out there, and he's the one that's the cause of it. What is your thought? The Philistines are running from him. What's your thought if you're a rational human being? Go fight. Now's the time. They're all running for you. Go fight. No, that's not what he does. Saul, still not quite ready to go, takes the priest Ahijah and tells him to bring either the ark or the ephod. We're not sure which because the Hebrew text says one, the Septuagint says another. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that he actually brings the ephod. What is the ephod? Do you remember? Yeah, it's the uh, uh, breastplate that the priest wears. So Ahijah is here, has an ephod. And there's something on the ephod called uh, urim and thumim. What is that? They're dice. One is light and one is dark. And the priest uses these to cast lots and determine what is the will of the Lord. Probably what is happening here. Now, if it's the ark that he asks him to bring, then Saul's just wanting to rub a lucky rabbit's foot. Oh, but he can't touch it. But you know what I'm saying. He, just to kind of have it near him so that there's sort of some magic that happens, I guess. But it's probably the ephod, and what he's wanting is to say, is this the will of the Lord? What do you think? The earthquake before Jonathan as he went into the, to fight the Philistines and, 
Anyway, he's wanting to know what the will of the Lord is. And so does he, does he go? No, he doesn't. He waits, okay? And so look in verses 16 and 17. Oh, wait, uh, is that where I'm at? Sorry, uh, 18. 1 Samuel 14, 18. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark or perhaps the ephod of God here. For the ark uh, or perhaps the ephod of God went at that time at, uh, with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people of Israel who were rallied with him, or, or who were with him, rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was a great confusion. Okay, so to paint this picture even uh, hopefully more clearly, is Saul is sitting there and says, wait, 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 bring the ark here, let's do this right. And so he's either standing before an ark and probably doing some sort of um, prayer before the Lord, or he's taking the uh, umim and thumim and rolling them to determine what the will of the Lord is. Whatever the case, Saul waits patiently for him to do this, and he can't even wait for that. (laughs) So he just cuts him short altogether and says, just forget it, and takes his men and then goes into battle. And they all go running after the Philistines after they're all scattered and after they see the, the tumultuous happenings there. Now, the next bit is even a little bit more confusing. There's so much more confusion that has happened amongst the Philistines because of what God has done before Jonathan that the Bible says something a little bit strange. Look at 1 Samuel 14 one uh, twenty-one to twenty-three. Somebody read that. All right, now do you notice that in 21, little confusing statement there? Now the Hebrews uh, who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into camp, what is that? Are these traitors that were part of the the Hebrews that were going with the Philistines? Well, that's possible that they were traitors from the Hebrews, but it's more probable that there is a group called the Happy Brews. Have you ever, you, you remember these? We talked about these a, a while back. This was probably several months ago that we talked about a group of people called the Happy Root. Um, they are identified in the Phoenician, in some Phoenician tablets. They're, they're identified as a group of people who were more or less mercenaries. They were people paid to fight on behalf of armies. And there may even be some history to suggest that these same people were actually hired by the Hebrew people in the conquest of the land of Canaan, and they fought with them in some cases. Um, there's some people that suggest that. And so the happy you can hear the, the word Hebrew in that, that name. They're very, very close to one another, and they come from basically the same root. And so it's possible that the Philistines had actually hired these mercenaries to be a part of them, and that's what the biblical author is trying to communicate. It was the happy Rue who were with the Philistines, 
and they switch teams. My, my five-year-old does this all the time. We sit down to watch the Cowboy game. I don't know if you know much about the Cowboys, but they frequently lose. And so he starts off rooting for the Cowboys because dad is rooting for the Cowboys. And once the Cowboys start to lose, he switches teams on me. He'll root for Alabama, and then as soon as Alabama goes down, he, he switches teams on me. And here are the happy root. They're doing the same thing. Uh, it, it could also be that these are Hebrews. We, we don't, we're not totally sure. I think that's probably right. They're happy root mercenaries. But point is, in the confusion, they see that the Philistines are losing and that they're killing each other and going crazy. And they switch teams. Yeah, we were with you guys the whole time. Let's go get them, right? I mean, can you imagine the, the chaos and confusion that is happening around the camp as all of these reinforcements and all of these, uh, these mercenaries begin changing teams, killing each other, all of this kind of stuff. And then in the process of doing that, and all of the confusion, and everybody's seeing now the Philistines are actually fleeing, all the men who left, or a lot of the men who left, and the Hebrews that were going, no, we're not going up there to fight, are now coming in and joining in the fight because, well, this is easy. All the Philistines are running from in front of us. But the sad part about this story that you might miss, it wasn't Saul that was the one that did it. It was Jonathan. It's really tragic. Because here's the king waiting under the pomegranate trees while Jonathan, his son, trusts the Lord to lead the battle. One on 20. Now, Saul gets pretty cocky. And he says, look at what we did. We drove them out. But there's still more to go. We still have more people to conquer. We still have, have, have to defeat the Philistines even further. We defeated some small encampments, but we, we still got to completely drive them out of the land. And so he forces his army to make an oath. And the oath is, we will not eat until we drive out all the Philistines. How many of you think that's a smart move? Yep. Can you imagine Nick Saban telling his team, you know, before we, we will not eat until we beat. I mean, that's crazy. That's, yeah, maybe that's what happened in the Auburn game. Um, too soon, man, too soon. Uh, so he puts them under oath. We will not eat until we have defeated all the Philistine army. Well, all of a sudden, Jonathan and his men are walking amongst the land and they see, they spot a honeycomb. Jonathan takes his staff, puts it in the honeycomb, puts the staff to his lips and eats the honey. And the text says his eyes were brightened. What does that mean? His eyes were brightened. Oh, got a sugar high. His glucose went straight through the roof. And he was like, wow, this is really good. Okay. So, but what is the text telling you? His eyes were brightened. It means that all of these people are hungry. And to eat food would be, I don't know, a really good thing. And in fact, if you drive out a whole army and they leave behind all their cattle and all their sheep and all their oxen and all these kinds of things, wouldn't you want to collect these things and, I don't know, feed your army? Of course you would. Wouldn't you want to take their weapons that they left on the ground? Of course you would. Did they? No, they didn't, because the king is an idiot, basically. <laughs> and so 
Jonathan, there's two ways in which Israel completely breaks this. One, Jonathan eats honey, and he didn't know Saul had made this command. The other one is that some of the people started slaughtering animals, and they ate them without draining the blood. Now, why did they do that, do you think? Well, one, they're starving. And so I ain't got time to wait till the blood drains. I'm just going to eat this animal. The other, it seems like they're not cooking the animals. Now, why wouldn't you cook them if that was the case? Well, if the king had just made you take an oath, if you cook it over a fire, <laughs> you can <laughs> Smells like barbecue around here. I thought I told everybody not to eat. All right, so the point is, they slaughtered some animals. They, uh, Jonathan ate honey. And uh, obviously, the, the eating of animals, first of all, there's the, they breached an oath that they made. But then the second is the eating of animals without draining the blood is a, pro, is a prohibition in Mosaic ritual law. So you, you can't do that. You have to drain the blood completely out. Jews to this day will eat all of their steaks well done. God bless them. Uh, but they do. So, um, strict prohibition against uh, Mosaic law. Now, put yourself in Saul's shoes for just a minute. God is your good luck charm. Okay? That's the way you think of God. It seems evident in a text. Your people, you get word that they have violated not only the oath that they've taken, but Mosaic law in eating animals without draining the blood. What do you think? Oh no, this is a bad omen. God is surely going to kill us. So he says, no, 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 guys, no. Give me a rock, bring a rock, roll a rock up here, and let's do this right. If you're going to kill the animals, let's drain the blood. Let's make a set. So by all accounts, he builds an altar there uh, out of rock, has his men do it, and they sacrifice to the Lord because, Lord, forgive us. That's not what we want to do. Now, after that scene, they want to go then and drive out the rest of the Philistines. And there, it's nightfall, which is an opportune time. You're hungry because you haven't eaten. And though some of your men snuck some food, but most of them haven't eaten. The Philistines are, have made their way away from you, and they're going to sleep. And they're putting people out probably to keep watch, but it's going to be a few people, and we can catch them by surprise under the cloak of darkness. And so it's an opportune time. Let's go. To which Ahijah says, wait, wait, wait. Maybe you want to seek the advice of the Lord first. And so he says, oh, yeah, you're right. What, what was I thinking? And so now they take the lots from the ephod and they cast lots to, uh, or they, they, sorry, they ask the Lord whether or not he will give them victory and he doesn't answer. And so Saul thinks to himself, well, of course he's not answering. He's not answering because of what we've done. Somebody has done something clearly wrong here that we have not made amends for and we need to make amends. And so they cast lots to figure out who it is and you'll never guess who the, the lots fall on. Jonathan. But in the process, one of the things that's interesting is that as they cast lots, they line up the people against Saul and Jonathan. And Saul makes another promise. I don't care if the lot falls on my own son, Jonathan, I'll kill him. Well, now you've done it. 
So they line up the people, and then Saul and Jonathan. And he says, which one was it? Was it the people, or was it Saul or me, me, me or Jonathan? Cast lots. Falls on Saul and Jonathan. It's unfortunate. Cast lots again. Falls on Jonathan. To which he asks Jonathan, what have you done? Jonathan's response is amazing because he tells him, I have eaten when you told me not to eat, so now it's time for me to die. Think about that for just a second. Let's put Saul up next to Jonathan. Which kind of man would you want to follow? Which kind of leader would you want to follow? Would it not be Jonathan? Who even under threat of death says, bring it on. I, you're right. I violated the word of the king even though he didn't know at the time. And in fact, you get an inkling in the text that the men even want to follow Jonathan. Because at the, the men know that Jonathan ate the honey. And they don't say anything to Saul. In fact, the text even says they didn't say a word. Saul said, even if it's Jonathan, I'll kill him. And the men didn't answer him. Because they knew it was Jonathan. So here is Jonathan standing before him and says, whatever it is, I'll do. Death. Even if necessary. But here we get another picture to fill out the idea of who Saul is. That what characterizes his personality is irrationality and madness. And how is that irrationality and madness brought on him? Because he disobeyed the Lord at Gilgal. Um, when the king is anointed, as we've seen with Saul, as he goes through the town, the spirit rushes upon him. And he is able to prophesy. He's able to understand the will of the Lord. Where he goes, the decrees are wise decrees because the Spirit of the Lord rushes on him. What do you think has happened as a result of God tearing the kingdom away from him? Well, Saul is going to slip into further irrationality and madness. His decisions are not wise ones. The theme of Saul is that he breaks under pressure. That when everybody around him hates him, when everybody around him deserts him, he collapses like a cheap folding chair. But that's not going to be true of David. And it's certainly not true of Jonathan. Both of them, on the contrary, it seems, trust the Lord in everything. So we find in that a subtle message, I think, to all of us as well. The secret to not breaking when you're being stretched is to, is to just say, look, this is by the Lord's decree. And whatever he brings is for my good and for his glory. That's true of both Jonathan and David, we'll see, and not true of Saul. Questions?
not here. How did what? How did he get out of what? Get, oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, I didn't say that. The people stood up for him. That's the other way we know that the people, it seems, really have a, a liking for Jonathan and really recognize him as a powerful uh, general in the king's army is that Saul says, I'm going I'm to kill you. And all the people say, wait a second, Jonathan saved us. God was appointed Jonathan to be our deliverer. Are you going to kill our deliverer? That's insanity. God doesn't want you to do that. And so eventually Saul relents and doesn't do it. But you'll see a number of times where Saul will decree that he's going to kill David. And David is on the run and he ends up missing on a number of occasions and laments and then goes back to it again. It's And why? Because he knows the kingdom has been torn away and the Spirit of God is... Look, look when, when you see that in the text of the Spirit leaving an individual or saying, look, you've sinned and, and you're not repentant and this is the kind of person you are and you're, it's being torn away from you and things like that, um, they make irrational decisions. They make unwise decisions. Uh, we saw that with Joshua when Achan sinned. When there's sin in the camp, Joshua makes really bad decisions. Decisions in invading uh, uh, I that he wouldn't have otherwise. You know, Achan steals the idol in Jericho, and then they go to invade I, and he makes a terrible battle, even terrible battle strategy. Why? Because there's a spirit of confusion in and amongst him. The Lord sort of withdraws his wisdom from him, and he makes bad decisions. And this goes into the whole thing with. God driving out the armies and God winning the battles. God also provides the wisdom for a person to overcome, honestly, even their own fallenness to the point where they're able to actually make godly decisions. Um, it's even true today of the Spirit's work in someone's heart uh, to be saved. You know, the wisdom to be saved. To profess faith in Christ is a work of the Spirit. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. I can understand why you would have. <laughs> um, so, Ahijah is of the, of the lineage of Eli, who's a fallen priest. The priesthood transitions to Samuel. Um, Ichabod is the name of, it's either Hophni or Phinehas' kid. Is it Phinehas? Phinehas' kid. His wife names the kid Ichabod, which means no glory. The author brings up Ahijah's lineage here. So what you realize of Ahijah, you wouldn't know who Ahijah was otherwise. You realize that Ahijah is of the lineage of a fallen priest and of the lineage of Ichabod, whose name means no glory. And so here you have two individuals who are sitting up here who are basically, the glory has been removed from them. One, the kingdom has been stripped away and two, the priesthood has been taken away from his lineage. And they're both sitting up on the hill trying to determine the will of the Lord when the Philistines are running from in front of them. Sorry, that, that was a little bit confusing. And it was because I, I totally missed a, putting in a verse in the worksheet. So, go ahead.
idea of like a fear of the Lord, wanting to do the right thing. But the problem is when we look closer that it's not really rooted in a love of God and a knowledge of God, but it's more out of um, that superstition that you'd be mentioning. So that, yeah. you know, yeah, self-preservation. So I think it and conventional me, wisdom even. Right. Right, yeah. I think it like drives me to, like, when I look at all this, I'm like, God, am I crazy? Like, I need it. I need sure. Uh, to understand uh, what who you really are, but I think sure. it drives us to the word and drives us to um, let me not just go to you in the crazy moments, in the chaos of sure. you know life's tumults, and try to figure out what do you want me to do right now. But every day, let me be walking with you so closely that I know your voice and I know where you want me to go and what you want me to do. Um, yeah, uh, for the Christians being steadily steeped in the Word of God so that you recognize wisdom from folly. Um, that's all through the book of Proverbs. That's, <laughs> the book of Proverbs is begging you uh, to do that, to enter the house of Lady Wisdom rather than Dame Folly. Absolutely. Other questions? But I, I do hope that you have a sense of the way you can relate to Saul in some of the decisions he makes. But... It, it, I do think it is interesting as you watch how those things un, unravel. You end up going back to his central decisions and going, why did he do that? You know, but when you really think about it, you're like, I, 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 I've done that. <laughs> I've made those kinds of decisions before. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, you haven't. Um, you know that you see the disciples do it. The apostles do it. They're in the upper room, and they're gonna. They're trying to figure out which apostle they're going to appoint. What's that? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's ephod. Uh, there's any. Uh, a friend of mine went to China and brought me back one one time. A um, the Chinese version of casting lots, and it's a, it's a, a, a cylinder with a cap on it. You remove the cap, and inside it looks like a really long toothpicks, and they all have their, well, actually like popsicle sticks, and they're all kind of super flat, and they have something written on them, and you shake them like this, and the one that comes out to be the longest, you pull it out, and that's your decision, as it were. Um, there's lots of casting lots throughout the, throughout the Bible. And, but what happens, that this ceasing to cast lots seems to be right there where the Holy Spirit comes in. And the Holy Spirit rushes upon them and they make decisions. And do what? I said, sorry, it's a new age. It's a magic eight ball. Magic, magic eight ball, yeah. Outlook hazy, ask again later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? The whole blasphemy thing that goes in my I can't imagine like having something. I need this sharp and let me go to my enemy. Like and it's not like registering like, oh this could be really bad one day to just maybe do something about it. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that didn't go on long enough for him to be like, Oh, this could be a problem. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been some sort of I'm trying to I'm trying to think what came before the Bronze Age. Would have been the Iron Age, probably. Or the the Iron Age. I think before that would have had to have been the Bronze Age. Bronze Age. Yeah. Well, they, they may have had something. I mean, obviously they had the, the sickle and the scythe and the mattock. 
Yeah, it's a, it, it, it's, it is an interesting thing. When, in, in fact, throughout history, by the way, uh, that is, the, is typically the tyrannical dictatorship has controlled the arms of a society throughout history. They probably they did. Have yeah. <laughs> no, they they probably had some things, but you know, you, you get you get into a fight. Uh, okay, so let's let's say you got an entire army coming in with knives and swords, and against America, who has guns. Who's going to win? Well, the same would be true of ancient armory coming in against iron. So the Philistines had introduced and by all accounts, had introduced a new form of weaponry into the land that was vastly superior to what they had. It's not long, by the way, if a communities came together, it's not long before the inferior weaponry is thrown aside for the new. And it's obvious that they were using some of the iron for plowshares, for uh, pruning hooks, for different kinds of sickles and things like that. And so you know, eventually a lot of those things fade away and they begin to take up the new weaponry, but then they're having to walk all the way down there to get them sharpened. So the, the amount of stuff that they've got in the land is just pales by comparison. And the Philistines did it with the intention so that when we go to war together, they won't have anything to fight with. You know, and so their arms are limited. And it, I mean, just look throughout history. This is, this is true in every civilization where the more powerful entity, whether it be the government or whatever, has come against the inferior. They've disarmed them first. That's period. That's just always happened. And it's a shrewd and kind of smart tactic if you're planning on killing a whole host of people. I mean, you know. So, all right. Let's pray.